0: Okay, here's my question for you. When was the last time you can remember messing someone's name up or someone messing your name up? It could be a mispronunciation or you just said the the wrong name altogether, right? It's a little embarrassing. It's a little awkward. I have a friend named Lakin, one of the sweetest humans on planet earth, okay? She works in a place where you always have a name tag on and she introduced herself to one of her coworkers and somehow he didn't hear Lakin, he heard Larkin. And he went home and told his mother, I work with someone that has the most unique and beautiful name you have ever heard. It's Larkin. And her mom was like, oh my goodness, this is such an amazing name. So for weeks, this guy calls Lakin Larkin, 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 Larkin. And finally, you yeah, I know Lakin. She's like, so sweet. She's like, I, I don't know what to do. So finally she said, hey, I hate to tell you, my name's Lakin. She pointed to her name tag and he just turned every shade of red, apologized all over himself. And she said, honestly, it's my fault too, because I let it go on for a long time, right? You've probably been there before. Simple mistake. We've all done it. We've all had it done to us. Baristas do it every day, right? You tell them one name, they say another name, you get it. But have you ever had somebody mess up your name and you feel like it's on purpose? And you're like, I think I hate you. You're kind (laughs) of a jerk, right? I have been living in this tension for my whole life based on a decision that a nurse made back in 1954, 70 years ago. So I'm named after my dad, 1954, July 11th. My dad is born. The nurse comes to my grandmother, Doris, and says, oh, he's beautiful. What's his name? And she said, it's Gerald, J-E-R-A-L-D. Now, this is really important to this story. My dad is one of 11 siblings, okay? All the boys' name starts with P. All the girls' names start with J. Her doctor literally told her, If you'd kept your PJs on, you wouldn't have so many kids. That's a true story, okay? Really important, really important that my dad's name starts with a J. So the nurse says, well, you can't spell Gerald with a J, it's G-E-R-A-L-D. And my grandmother, who's just given birth, said, I want it to be J-E-R-A-L-D. The nurse nods her head, goes over, grabs the birth certificate, G-E-R-A-L-D. Yeah. She didn't find out for weeks until she got the birth certificate in and never had anything nice to say about that nurse. And so now I have always been Jerry with the J, Gerald with a G, named after my dad, and we have this identity crisis. We're trying to figure out who we are, which one of those is true about us, right? Names matter. It's important. You want, you want to say the right name. You want people to say the right name to you, right? Our names carry with it a sense of identity. Well, what we're going to see today as we continue through the book of Exodus is that God is going to begin to reveal the power of his name to a variety of different people. There's Moses and his brother Aaron. There's all the Israelites. There's Pharaoh in particular. And what we're going to see is all these people, they're coming in contact with the power and the promises associated with God's name. And they're going to have a decision to make. It's actually the same decision that you and I are faced with regularly. And here it is. Will we trust in the promise of God and the power of his name or... Well, we choose to ignore all that God says is true about him and his character and his name and just walk away from him. That's really what we're going to see play out here in the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Exodus chapter five. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles under the seats. You can take one of those home as our gift to you. Turn to Exodus chapter five, second book of the Bible. Now, by the time we get to Exodus chapter five, we've learned that the people of Israel have been enslaved for over 400 years. And we also learned that there's a man named Moses. He was born as an Israelite. He was raised by the Egyptians. And at age 40, he sees his people being mistreated. And he's like, somebody's got to do something about this. And so he jumps into action. He tries to help two of his fellow Israelites that are being beaten and they rebel against him. Like, we don't want your help. We don't need your help. And so it blows up in his face and Pharaoh The leader of Egypt heard about it and decided that he was going to try to have him killed. So at age 40, Moses has to flee into the wilderness for the next 40 years of his life. And he lives in obscurity as a shepherd. And we talked about this last week in Exodus chapter 3. At the age of 80, he's out living as a shepherd, thinking his life is over. And God appears to him in a burning bush. And listen to how God introduces himself to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now pay close attention to the word God. It's a capital G God. What's the difference between a capital G and a lowercase g? A lowercase g is one of many. Capital G though is one and only, one over all. And so God is making an absolute statement about himself to Moses. I am the God of your father, of your family. So he's making an absolute statement about who he is. And then in the very next verse, listen to how the capital G God of creation speaks about his relationship to the Israelites. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land. So in these verses, we see God revealing the power of his name, making the power of his name known as the capital G God over everyone and everything all the time. He claims the Israelites as his very own people. And pay attention, he says, I am going to rescue them. That's what I am going to do. Maybe it helps us to think of it like this. God is making, or he has made absolute statements about who he is who is his, who belongs to him, and what he will do for them, what he will do for his people. He's promising. He's making big promises. And so time and time again, we're going to see this repeated in the book of Exodus. And the question is, well, how will people respond? What will they do? Now, look at how the Israelites respond. When Moses and Aaron go to them uh, to tell them this good news, Exodus 4, 29, Moses and his brother Aaron, Names matter. I don't know why there's an extra A there, but it's not Aaron. It's Aaron. And if you're wondering like, who is this Aaron guy? He's Moses's older brother. And he plays a really important part in the story. So Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed before them the signs before the people. And they pay attention to this. They believed And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. This is so important. In fact, it's so important. I want to have you repeat it after me because it's going to come up later. So I want you to say they believed believed. and they worshiped. Don't miss this. They believed and they worshiped. That's the way it's supposed to work because God reveals himself to his people. God keeps his promises to his people and his people are supposed to respond by believing and worshiping. Keep it in mind. Now, all of that brings us to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and his brother Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, a couple of important details here. First of all, notice Moses and Aaron go and they deliver a message to Pharaoh, but it's not their message. Moses isn't saying, let my people go. Moses is saying, God is saying, let my people go. This is important. This is God's first pass at Pharaoh's heart to say, hey, I want you to know who is who and who is whose. Those are my people, I am their God. And then there's this matter of the festival. Now, this is fascinating. Philip Ryken notes that there is an ancient Egyptian manuscript on display in the Louvre in France. It dates back to the time of Ramses II, which indicates that Egyptian slaves were sometimes given time off from work to worship their gods. It was like a national holiday, okay? So Moses and Aaron are asking Pharaoh for something that wasn't totally unheard of, but look at Pharaoh's response in verse two. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now remember, we might look at this and think, man, what a dummy. He's Egyptian. They've got a bunch of gods. They, they worshiped all kinds of gods. And on top of that, in Egyptian culture, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh himself was a god, a little g god. And so it's really not a surprise that he's like, I don't know your god. These people are my slaves. I really don't care who their god is. But look a little closer. Pay attention to what else he says. Look back at the same verse. Let's highlight some different words. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord, and I'm not gonna let Israel go. So Pharaoh is not only denying God's request for his people to enjoy a three-day weekend of worship, he is challenging God's possession of these people. He's like, these are my slaves. They don't belong to you. They belong to me. Pretty interesting, right? Look at verse three. Then they, Moses and Aaron said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God or he may strike us with plagues and the sword. They take another pass and it's almost like they're trying to appeal to a softer side. If he has a softer side, instead of directly challenging his authority, they're like, hey, God has said He's gonna. he might even kill us. You might lose your entire workforce if you don't let this happen. But here's what I think is more important. He may strike us down with plagues and the sword. This is a foreshadowing of what God is going to do to Pharaoh and his people if Pharaoh does not change his tune in this matter. So look at Pharaoh's response, verse six. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer gonna supply these people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, verse eight, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. I mean, you can just hear him mocking the people of Israel. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Pharaoh's response was to make their life more difficult because he thought he was in control. He thought these are my people. But did you notice how he refers to the Israelites and their God? He says, these people are lazy and their God's. liar. Maybe you can relate. Have you ever had anybody ridicule you because of your faith in God? You're living as a follower of Jesus and people want to poke and make their comments. Maybe it's because of the way that you filter media. You're careful with what you watch or what you listen to or how you engage on social media. Um, Maybe it's your choice to not go along with the crowd, to not do things that you know that God has called his people to not do, to live a holy life Maybe it's the way you've set up some boundaries that you enforce between work and family life or sports and family life or band and family life or March Madness and family life. You fill in the blank. You're trying to set a different pace. You're wanting your family to know God is first and then it's us and then it's everyone else. Or maybe you're single and it's God is first and work doesn't come before God. You can fill in the blank on whatever it is and you're doing all those things out of a genuine love for God. But you know what? That doesn't mean that the people around you really care. Then They don't care, they don't have to care. And so what are they gonna do? They're gonna jab at you. They're gonna call you all kinds of names. You're, you're lazy, you're weird, you're old school, and not in a good way. You're old fashioned, you're boring, you're a fundamentalist. I mean, you fill in the blank. In fact, if you've had it, come tell me what, what they've called you before. Not really a surprise, but they're probably not gonna stop there. Because eventually there will be a boss, a coworker, a professor, and they're gonna come at you hard. And they're gonna challenge the why behind what you believe. And they're gonna attack your God and say, that's ridiculous, there's no God. And if there was, why would he allow all this? You, you can't tell me the good God would allow this. You're a fool. And if there is a God, he is powerless. They're gonna come at you. And you're gonna be forced to think through a question. Are you gonna trust in the promises of God? in the power of his name, or will you ignore them and begin to turn away from him? Here's what I want you to see. In these early chapters of Exodus, God continues to make the power of his name known in spite of Pharaoh's unbelief. And remember how the Israelites responded at the end of Exodus chapter four? What'd they do? They bowed down and they worshiped. They believed and they worshiped. Well, that didn't last very long. Look at verse 19. The Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, To Moses and Aaron, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot for bringing God into the equation because now he wants to kill us. Life wasn't hard enough. And so look at Moses's response to God now in verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why? Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Kind of sounds like he's wagging his finger at God. He is blaming God for not showing up in this. And I I think it's interesting how he refers to the Israelites. Your people, this people, they're not my people. This was your idea. This is, you gotta step up. If you're gonna do something, you need to do something. I'm getting blamed for being faithful. I haven't done anything wrong, God. Can you relate? Have you ever done your best to do what is right and good for you or for others? And people don't even seem to care. In fact, life gets a little harder. It reminds me of a guy I know. He and his wife were going to do a kitchen remodel. Just a little small project. And he says, you know what? I think I'm going to be helpful here. I'm going to free up some funds. We can go a little bigger. So he begins sharing his opinions. And he learns quickly, his wife doesn't want his opinions. She just wants him to say, yes, this is what we're going to do. And it's hard for us to imagine a story like this where a guy could be so helpful and only find himself in trouble. But it's a true story because it's my story. That's my story. I have my wife's permission to share that story. Just saying, just saying. You can, you've been, we've, you do the right thing. And you're like, I don't even understand why I'm in trouble right now. Here's a better example, though. There's a couple here at Genesis. They have two amazing kids that have had some pretty significant health issues, and then they adopt, or they adopt, they foster a little boy because they're trying to figure out, do we, do we try to have another kid? I don't know. What are we supposed to do? And for the last nine months, they've been fostering this little boy that they've grown to love. And now they're pregnant with baby number three. And their their prayers are, okay, God, our house is filling up. And these kids are little. Like, what do you want us to do? It's getting hard. They love this little boy. They love their kids. And the further they get down the path of obedience, the trickier things get. So I think maybe the lesson that we can learn from Moses and from our friends here at Genesis is, It doesn't mean, obeying God doesn't mean that you're gonna be popular or liked. It doesn't mean everything's gonna go your way. It doesn't even mean that things are gonna make sense. In fact, I think the more often we obey, the harder life gets because there is an enemy that wants to make our life difficult. He doesn't want us to obey. But really, it doesn't matter if we feel like God's out of control because his timing and his purposes, they're higher than ours, they're better than ours. Now, imagine you're Moses. You're trying to do what's right. You're trying to do what's good. You've been obedient. Look at what God says back to him. Exodus 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. Now, at this point in time in in history, Pharaoh was the most powerful person on planet Earth. No one more powerful than Pharaoh. Pharaoh. But I also want you to pay attention to that phrase, mighty hand. It's repeated twice here. In verse six, we see um, a reference to God's outstretched arm. These are references that point to God's absolute power and control in every way. His power over everything to accomplish things according to his time and his will, for his purposes and ultimately for his glory. And so God is letting Moses know, hey Moses, I see you. I've seen your obedience. You've done exactly what I've asked you to do. I need you to keep obeying because I'm getting ready to humble Pharaoh because he's gonna know who is who. He's gonna know the difference between a capital G God and a little g God. Look at what he says in verse two. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now, these are two really important references to the names of God. In the original Hebrew, I am the Lord is his personal name, Yahweh. He's personal. God Almighty in Hebrew is El Shaddai. I heard, I read one translation that says that means God the overpowerer. God the Overpower Sounds weird, but it's meant to remind us of God's divine might versus our human frailty. And so what God is saying is, hey, Moses, I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh, I'm personal but I'm also El Shaddai, God Almighty. I'm in in control. Look at verse four. I also established my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. The word covenant highlighted twice also means promise. He's saying I'm El Shaddai, I'm Yahweh, I'm personal, I'm powerful, and I keep my promises. You don't have to worry about me keeping my promises. And then I want you to hear what he says next. And I want you to pay attention in this next verse because God's gonna make seven I will statements. So God Almighty, Yahweh, El Shaddai says this. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. There's the name Yahweh. And I will bring you up out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand and give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Now in those four verses, God said, I will seven times. And those seven I wills translate to four words of salvation. We're going to get into those words in just a second, but you got to know something about that phrase, I will, in the original Hebrew. This is fascinating. It's in the past perfect tense. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, what's that mean? If I say, or if I, say I will do something, or you tell me I will do something, I think, okay, well, you're going to do it when you get around to it. Past perfect tense, God is saying, I have and I will. It's like it's already done. Nothing is going to change. What I am telling you right now, I'm gonna do it. It's, it's like it's already done to me. Now, I don't know if God is flexing here. I don't know if it's a humble brag. I just think it's amazing that he could make a statement like that, and it's exactly what happens on the pages of Exodus. And here's what I want you to see before we get into these I wills. They were true for the ancient Israelites, and they are true for us as followers of Jesus. The Israelites were enslaved in physical slavery, Scripture tells us we are in bondage to sin. And so pay attention to that as we walk through these I wills. So the first two I wills, they work together. He says, I will bring you out and I will set you free. This is a picture of deliverance and liberation from their physical slavery in Egypt. But remember, God made a promise way back in Genesis 3 that he would send a Messiah who would crush the head of Satan that would reunite us in our relationship with God. And in the New Testament, we learn that, that, that sin our sin leads to death. And we talked about this two weeks ago, a major pattern found throughout scripture. God has a habit of taking a place that's meant for death and turning it into a place of life and salvation. For the, Egypt, for the Israelites, Egypt was a land of death and God is getting ready to bring it into a place of life and salvation. The Apostle Paul tells us, the new writers of the New Testament tell us, that Jesus's tomb was meant for death and it's a place of life and salvation. He has come to set humanity free from the penalty of sin and death through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God's next I will focuses on redemption. He says, I will redeem you. This is the second time in scripture so far that the word redeem has been used and it's a financial term. It's used, it was used in the ancient marketplace to describe the release of a slave by the payment of a ransom. Something was owed and a price was paid. God promises to redeem the Israelites from their slavery. The New Testament says he has paid for our sins through the blood of his son, Jesus. Jesus paid the price that you and I could have never paid to set us free so we could be redeemed. His next two I wills are connected and they speak to God's desire to adopt us and to make us his very own. He says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So when God redeems us, he saves us from a terrible situation that when he saves us from death, when he adopts us, he says, hey, I don't want you just to know me as Yahweh or El Shaddai. I want you to be a part of my family. You can know me as your heavenly father. Now, this is where the power of Jesus coming into the earth as a man comes into play. As the son of God, he lived as a human to rescue humans so that we could be known as children of God. That, that's amazing love. His last two I wills speak to the promise of an inheritance. He says, I will bring you to the land I swore to your forefathers and I will give it to you as a possession. So both of these I wills refer back to the covenant that God made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Big promise. He says, your family that doesn't exist yet will be a mighty nation. And I am going to give them a land that will be their inheritance. If you've been paying attention to the news, that's the land that people fight over all the time. No one wants Israel to have their land. It is God's promised land. It should be no surprise to us that the rest of the world says you can't have it because God promised, they don't wanna believe that God has given it to them. It's their inheritance. Now, if you're Jewish, if you're Hebrew, you're like, that's great, I have an inheritance. I'm not Jewish. So what's that mean for me? What's that mean for you? Well, the apostle Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fate. He goes on to say, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is the kingdom of God that is being made known right now through the salvation that is found through faith in Jesus. In Matthew chapter five, at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. In the book of Revelation, The apostle John wrote what he heard God say, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Our inheritance is the kingdom of God that is being revealed and that will be here one day when Jesus returns for all humanity to enjoy through faith in Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, that is your inheritance. If your faith is not in Jesus, you can't claim that inheritance. In fact, you're still on the death side of things, but he's inviting you to come and find life in him. And so here's the best way for us to end today. Instead of a clever story, I want you to interact with the Holy Spirit. I want you to process these I wills. So we're gonna put them back here, up here on the screen. And I'm gonna give you a moment. And I just want you to pray. All of these are true. If your faith is in Jesus, you have been liberated, redeemed, adopted, and you have an inheritance. All of those are true. Maybe there's one in particular that he's saying, hey, this is true. Take this. Make it your own. This is what I've done for you. If your faith is not yet in Jesus, this is what he wants to offer you. You know, it's interesting to me that Pharaoh said, make their life hard. They had to work. All they knew was work. Some of us are following Jesus and all we know is work. We work so hard to be the best people we can be, to be better, the best Christians on the planet. And we just, we're little Pharisees. We have our own set of rules. Jesus says, I want to liberate you from that. You are saved by grace through faith. Be set free. That's the message of the gospel. You can't do it. I can't do it. We can't do it together. You've been redeemed. Your life has been paid for. Your sins have been forgiven except that price that was paid through the blood of Jesus. You've been adopted. You're not an orphan. You're a son and a daughter. Live like it. You have a heavenly father that loves you Go to the promises of scripture. Don't listen to the enemy. That's true for you. I will give you an inheritance. It starts right now with your forgiveness. I'm gonna put my spirit in you. Go live for me. Claim the kingdom of God. Be a light bearer. Which one of those is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart? Take some time and talk to him. Let him speak to you. Listen to his voice. Do what he says. Thank you. Yahweh, you are the great I am. We're not even able to understand what that means. We just know that that's your personal name, your personal, and you are who you are. And because you are who you are, you have promised that you have and you will liberate us, redeem us, adopt us. You will give us an inheritance. And that means that you are our faith in Jesus. You're making us holy. You're showing us and teaching us how to live. Holy Spirit, will you set us free from legalism, from religion, from our stupid little rules that we follow that have nothing to do with a relationship with you. They just make us feel good. Would you crush them? Would you give us soft hearts to pursue you, to know you, to sit with you, to be with you, Yahweh. El Shaddai, we worship you, that you are God, the overpowerer. You have the power to set us free. You have the power to make promises and to do things that only you could do. And so I pray that your power would be revealed. And if that power, the power of El Shaddai lives inside of us through your Holy Spirit. Would you help us to live like it? To not live afraid. To not worry about being popular or fitting in. Living in your kingdom is not fitting in on the world, in the world. Remind us of that. Help us to live on purpose give us peace in the midst of chaos. You have come to set us free from addictions, from habits, from family patterns, from a lack of self-control. You have set us free to live in a world that is enslaved to sin. Help us to live as bearers of light, of people of grace and mercy and goodness that reflects who you are to the world around us, that draws people far from you in. Help us to live like your adopted children through faith in your son, Jesus, and in him alone is that true. Help us to embrace the inheritance that we have that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Break our grip on all the garbage that we're trying to pile up for ourselves, that we cannot take with us and it doesn't matter. Help us to live lives that are generous in every way imaginable with our time, our resources, our gifts, our, our finances, our lives and help us to honor you in all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do. Let our lives burn bright for you. Lord, I pray that there's anyone listening or in this room that has not turned their heart to you. Holy Spirit, would you do for them what you've done for me and so many others? Would you say their name very clearly? And would you help them to respond in faith, to turn to you, to turn to you in life and salvation, to leave their life of sin and death behind, to be forgiven and filled and called to a brand new eternity. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all that Jesus has done to set us free. It's in his name we pray.